0: Welcome to Politics Is Everything, where we're talking about what to expect when you're expecting election results. I'm Kara ong And
1: I'm Kyle Conding.
0: On Tuesday, November 7th, voters in several states will go to the polls to cast ballots in state and local elections across the country. Although many voters have already cast their ballots early, the crystal ball did a mega preview of some of the key elections that we're watching, which include gubernatorial elections in Kentucky and Mississippi, the state legislative contest in Virginia, an abortion-related ballot in Ohio, and a state Supreme Court race in Pennsylvania. Kyle, let's start with Kentucky and Mississippi. That's where incumbents, incumbent governors Andy Bashir and Tate Reeves are facing challengers. In Kentucky, it's State Attorney General Daniel Cameron and Public Service Commissioner Brandon Presley in Mississippi. I wonder if you can talk about some of the the dynamics driving these gubernatorial contests.
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, you know, you've got two red states at the federal level in Kentucky and Mississippi, although Kentucky is one of the few Trump-won states that has a Democratic governor, um, whereas Tate Reeves is a Republican, and Republican leaning Mississippi. I think both of them have, you know, certainly have credible challengers. Um, you know, I think that our sort of default position the whole time is that, you know, Andy Bashir would probably have a harder time than Tate Reeves, um, just because, you know, Bashir is a Democrat in a red state and, and Reeves is a Republican in a red state. You, know, you wouldn't otherwise think that given that, you know, Bashir's approval rating has always been really pretty good. Reeves has been kind of middling. He's had some scandals and other problems to deal with, but, um, but ultimately it's just a really heavy lift for a Democrat in Mississippi. And frankly, it's a heavy lift for a Democrat in Kentucky too. Although you know Bashir um, polling has generally shown B- Bashir leading, there was one from Emerson late last week that showed the race basically tied. I have heard that um, that Dan Cameron is sort of catching up, which sort of makes sense uh, in that uh, you know the, the sort of the, the natural partisanship of, of Kentucky reasserting itself. You know, my sort of baseline assumption has been that Bashir was was a, a small favorite, and that. If he won, it would be by a relatively small margin. That's sort of how I still feel about it, and you know, we'll see. You know, if that ends up being right or wrong, Um, with in Mississippi, uh, you know, I feel like people are talking about how the Democrats have a really strong candidate there for the first time in a while. Which I do think Brandon Presley is a strong candidate. He's sort of a conservative, uh, at least on at least on social issues, uh, Democrat, kind of similar to. John Bell Edwards, the uh, outgoing Democratic governor of Louisiana. Um, but, you know, Democrats did run the, the sitting state attorney general, uh, Jim Hood, in 2019. So they had a strong ca- candidate back in 2019 as well. Um, Hood ended up losing to Reeves by about five points. Um, you know, I do think this is likely to be, you know, kind of a single digit race like that is. Uh, Mississippi has a runoff system now. Uh, so it's possible that there's a third party candidate that's who's left leaning but dropped out of the race and endorsed Presley. Possible that she'll get you know some small percentage of the vote, which could potentially throw it to a runoff. But um, you know, again, incumbent Republican governor in a Republican state, um, you know, I, th- I think that 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 person should probably be looked at as a favorite, and that's how we're looking at at uh, at Reeves. You know, one way to as you're, we're sort of assessing the 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 fallout from the elections, um, it'll just be curious to see you know obviously whether there's an upset in either state if Bashir loses or if Reeves, lo- Reeves loses. But also the, the the competing margins between Bashir and Reeves. You know, again, I, I think if, if in fact, Bashir wins, I think it's likelier to be by a smaller margin than Reeves. You know, does something different happen there? Or again, is there an upset that can maybe tell us something about the overall sort of trajectory of the the 2023 election night? And
0: just to... Clarify for our listeners. So there was an independent candidate, Gwendolyn Gray, who was more progressive. And she did drop out weeks ago and as you mentioned, endorsed Presley. But I think some of the challenge may be that her name is still on the ballot.
1: That's right. Yeah. She dropped out too late for her, um, for her name to be taken off. And so um she's, you know, she's actually, I've heard that in in some, you know, some internal polling, she's actually still polling relatively high. Now um, I mean, you know, like, like more than one or 2% is what I'm saying there. Um, but, uh, um, so it may be that, that, you know, Republicans who don't like Reeves or, um, you know, or, or Democrats who, you know, don't, don't know Presley or what have you, maybe they're parked in that column, but you figure that those people would, you know, would ultimately come home. You know, one, one dynamic typically is that third party candidates pull better than they perform. Um, but you know, that to the extent she gets votes that. Um, you know, may lower the vote totals for for both of the major party candidates, and and again, that that makes a runoff um, at least a, at least a possibility.
0: So, another state that we are watching very closely are the legislative contests in Virginia. We have all forty state senators and one hundred delegates that are on the ballot. I think you've dubbed this Governor Glenn Youngkin's midterm elections, <laughs> and so we will see what. Will be happening there, but I, I can say that Governor Glenn Youngkin has been inv- investing not just a lot of time, but also doing a lot of fundraising and investing a lot of resources into the elections this year. In in part because there's, they're hoping that they will gain full control of all three branches of state government. What do you see as some of the key contests in Virginia?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, both the House and the Senate are are very competitive. You know, the Democrats are defending a small majority in the Senate, Republicans defending a small majority in the House. Um, this this election is taking place on uh, newly drawn uh, legislative maps. So that sort of scrambled things a little bit. Um, and, you know, some of the places where, where we're looking, uh, you know, there's a, there's a key state Senate race in Loudoun County that is almost, you know, t- t- in terms of the money going in there, it's like a... It's almost like a kind of like a low level competitive U.S. House race, as opposed to you know just a state Senate race. Um, Democrat Russett Perry and Republican Juan Pablo Segura. That's one of the key races. Uh, a Donovan, Donavant, who is um, the one Republican senator who's seeking re-election in a, in, a, in a district. Not only that, Joe Biden won basically. Joe Biden won almost basically all the competitive state House and state Senate districts. Um, but this is actually a district that Terry McAuliffe carried in in uh, the twenty twenty one um, gubernatorial election that he lost narrowly to Glenn Youngkin. Um, she is, she's probably an underdog in, 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 in that district. Um, you know, a handful of other districts across the state. Um, there's one, uh, on the peninsula that, uh, it looks like it's going to be, you know, potentially the, the closest race out there. But, you know, bottom line is, is if the, if, is if Democrats could win the seat currently held by, um, Donovan in, in West side of Richmond, and if Democrats can win the Loudoun County seat that I mentioned earlier, um, that's probably going to be enough to get them to 21, uh, which would be a majority for them. Uh, Republicans could get an effective majority just by getting their 2020 tie um, because uh, Lieutenant Governor Winston Earl Sears is Republican who would break ties. Um, I think the Democrats, I, I think it'd be at least a, a slight surprise if uh, Democrats lost the Senate. Um, the House seems more competitive, kind of closer to like a true toss up. Um And uh, there's also the possibility of a a legitimate 50-50 tie in the state house because there's no tie-breaking mechanism in the Virginia House of Delegates. So if it is 50-50, the parties would have to come up with some sort of um, uh, 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 tie-breaking or or some sort of power-sharing agreement. Um, Number of competitive districts across the state, uh, you know, uh, there are a couple in in Prince William County. Um, There's a key one in Virginia Beach, a key one in Fredericksburg. Um, some places around Richmond. Um, generally speaking, you know, you know, most of Virginia's population is in what we call the the so-called urban crescent. You know, basically Northern Virginia down to Richmond and then Hampton Roads. Um, there isn't a whole lot competitive that's um, sort of west of Richmond. Um, you know, the Charlottesville area seats are I don't think are, are particularly competitive. There may be a seat in in uh, you know near Virginia Tech or in Roanoke that that might be sort of borderline competitive, but um, pretty much the, the districts that, that both sides look at as as uh as kind of like fifty fifty kind of races are in those uh, you know big urban areas again, and that's where most of the voters are anyway.
0: Yeah, and just to give our listeners some sense of the fundraising on, on the Senate side, Republicans have all Senate Republican candidates in this cycle have raised over forty one million, and all Democrats have raised over sixty two million. On the House side, Republicans have raised almost 37 million and Democrats have raised a little over 48 million. Of course, the concentration of the fundraising is really in some of those key races that you already mentioned, but it really is quite astounding how much money is flooding in, especially from outside groups, into the state legislative races here in Virginia, but also in, in, in some of the other elections that, that we are talking about today.
1: Yeah, you know, Virginia doesn't, you know, doesn't really have much in terms of uh, uh, campaign fundraising limits and so it's pretty easy for big donors to write big checks and of course, you know, Governor Yunkin is is very involved in that through Spirit Spirit of Virginia PAC. Of course, there are other big donors on the uh, on the Democratic side pumping in uh, a, a lot of money, but you know, part of it too is that there are there are relatively few state legislatures across the country or state legislative chambers that are legitimately two two party competitive and the Virginia legislature, both chambers uh, cer- cer- certainly are. Um, and so that, that's part of it too. And, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot going on, um, in politics across the country in these odd numbered year elections. But, um, Virginia of course sort of stands out as a state that has really important, either state or federal level elections every single year. Most states are not like that. You know, they have their, um, state and federal elections in even numbered years, but Virginia's a little bit, uh, uh, a, a little bit, a little bit different. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, there, there are a lot of stakes for kind of how both sides are talking about, uh, reproductive rights. You know, the, uh, Governor Yunkin and, uh, Republicans have been campaigning on a, um, 15 week abortion ban with, with, with exceptions. Um, Democrats focus on, you know, basically the words, you know, new and ban or new and restriction. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, that in 2021, uh, Yunkin was talking a lot about, uh. You know about education and and so-called parental rights and, and 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 those sorts of things. And I think a lot of other Republicans, you know, took, uh, you know, borrowed some of what Youngkin Young campaigned on in elections in 2022. I suspect that you know if Republicans do well and win both chambers, um, which I think would be a little bit of a surprise. But but again, both chambers are competitive. Um, maybe you'll see um, some of that messaging on the, the abortion rights issue. Um, get exported to other states for for 2024. In some ways, it's sort of like uh, Virginia can be kind of like a messaging testing ground, um, sort of a preview for what the parties might be talking about um, when more, you know, when when all the states are on the ballot in the even-numbered years.
0: So speaking of reproductive rights, there's also a major amendment on the ballot to the state constitution in Ohio, which if passed would establish a right to abortion, contraception, fertility treatment, and miscarriage care in Ohio's Constitution. We previously covered the special election in August in Ohio, which asked voters to essentially take away their own power by raising the threshold for voters. To amend the Constitution would require a bare 50 percent majority to a 60 percent. That was widely viewed, that August special election was widely viewed as an attempt to short circuit what's now on the ballot tomorrow in Ohio, which is now actually about abortion rights. That August election was, of course, seen as a proxy vote on reproductive rights. You just mentioned the role that reproductive rights is playing uh, in the Virginia state legislative elections and what might, how it might translate into 2024. How are we, you thinking about this reproductive rights measure in Ohio and what it might tell us about 2024?
1: Well, these ballot issues have generally done pretty well since the Dobbs decision last year. Um, and I do think that th- this one is favored. Um, I, I will say it might end up being um, more competitive and maybe there's a higher chance of an upset this time in part because, well, couple, at least a couple of things. Um, first of all, in ballot issues, sometimes you'd rather be the no position than the yes position in terms of just what people are are picking on the ballot. Um, the, um, the sort of pro-abortion rights side was no in August. This time they're yes, and so there's like a status quo bias that sometimes happens in these ballot issues. Now, Maybe it's also that um, this is an issue that people pretty much understand and understand where they where they stand on it. You know, Sometimes ballot issues, I think, maybe suffer from the status quo bias because people maybe don't understand the issue. And so just basically they just vote no because they don't understand it. Um, and also uh, Governor Mike DeWine, a Republican who has been... Um, um, pretty much, you know, being being sort of anti-abortion rights has been a big part of his political and, and personal background for you know for for a long, basically almost a half-century career in uh, in elected politics. Um, but uh, um, DeWine played very little role in the August vote, but he's been basically the face of this vote this time, and um, he's you know recorded a bunch of ads with his wife arguing that uh, however people feel about the abortion issue, that uh, that this. You know the, the argument goes that that this this goes too far. Of course, you know Democrats disagree with that. But um, I do wonder if that if if his role in it might lead to some sort of a different result. Um, but again, given given the success that these kinds of issues have had, and what we saw in August, um, you know, I think it'd be again it'd be surprising if this if this issue failed.
0: Yeah, and with Governor Dewine, he did sign a six-week abortion ban into law, and in some of the interviews that he's been doing as the face of the campaign in this election, he has said that if voters reject issue one, that he would push to add exceptions for rape and incest to Ohio's six-week ban Um, but it's not really clear if those promises will help persuade some more moderate voters. I think it's also worth noting that the Public Research Religion Institute found that just 6% of Ohioans believe that abortion should be illegal in all cases.
1: Yeah. And, 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 um, you know, DeWine, um, I think he sometimes has, uh, you know, he, he pushes for things sometimes, but it's not like he gets the legislature just to march in lockstep with him. And it's just where the Republicans are on the the abortion rights issue. Um, if, you know, if the Republicans win this election, I doubt their reaction is going to be, okay, we need to moderate on this, even though you could imagine there being another ballot issue down the line that tries to, that tries to address this issue. Maybe it's a little more limited than, than this one, um, now, but, um, you know, I just, I don't, I don't think there there would be much appetite to do that even if the governor was uh was 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 pushing for it because again logically the the thing that the Republicans could have done after the August vote was to try to moderate the law you know after the August vote as sort of a way to set up the November vote give them something to run on but um they decided not to do that so they're rolling the dice that they can try to defeat this thing um without really offering um you know any 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 real uh, concessions. It's also worth noting that that six week ban is um, not is not it's in place, but it's not being enforced right now because of this court battle that uh, you know has basically taken us up to the election, and so the election is going to sort of determine whether that law ever ends up being um, uh, enforced.
0: So one final uh, election that we're watching for tomorrow is the state supreme court race in Pennsylvania. It's not as critical as the election in Wisconsin earlier this year. The control of the court is not at stake right now, but it will be perhaps in 2025. But it is important because it could have implications for the 2024 elections because the state Supreme Court plays a really important role in election-related cases, and Pennsylvania is, of course, a battleground state at the presidential level. So what should we be watching for in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court race?
1: Yeah, um, it is It is important for the overall makeup of the court. Again, Democrats are going to have the majority either way, but, um, but there's been some recent decisions. There's been a, a, a vacancy on the court. Uh, a, a, a Democratic justice uh, died in 2022 and was not replaced, and so the, the person will be replaced in this election. But Um, there've been some three, three deadlocks in which one democratic justice has voted with two Republicans on some election related, uh, lawsuits. So, um, you know, if it, if it ends up being five, two democratic, you know, the Democrats maybe could rely on maybe getting more of their way in some of these cases, And, and if not, maybe Republicans will have a chance to get their way, um, in one of the, you know, I don't know, five or six most important states in the, uh, in the electoral college, um, for next year in a place where, you know, there's, there's been a lot of, uh, um discussion about the, the absentee ballots and, and, uh, um, you know, some, some, uh, uh, uh you know, again, law, lawsuits about how those things are handled and whatnot, which I'm sure we'll see more legal action in that state, uh, um, in, in, in the coming months and, and around the November, um, election. Uh, one thing that's a little interesting about the Supreme court race is that, um, it doesn't necessarily conform exactly to like presidential or Senate voting. You know, the, Republicans have been losing ground in Southeast Pennsylvania, um, you know, in the Philadelphia suburbs and exurbs, um, while the Democrats have been losing ground in places like um, some places in, in Western Pennsylvania, um, Northeastern Pennsylvania, in, in Scranton, et cetera. But in 2021, there was a court race that Republicans very narrowly won. And, um, you know, the Democrats sort of had this sort of ancestral advantage in some places where they had lost ground in the in the Trump era, but Republicans also performed a lot better in the Philadelphia suburbs than they had previously, and that allowed them to win the election. So, um, I'm curious to see how much the results conform to the kind of presidential and Senate patterns, um, or or if we see some of these kind of more unusual ancestral patterns in in the uh, in the vote count.
0: And just to sound like a broken record, here this state supreme court race is actually the state supreme court. Race is costing more than $22 million. And so, may also, like some of the other contests we've talked about, hit a record high, at least for a high court race in Pennsylvania, just showing how important this race seems to be in the state.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, we, we come at these with a, with a national perspective. I guess with Virginia, you know, Center for Politics being based at UVA, like we do try to pay more attention to our home state. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, obviously beyond what will sort of sift through these races for, for indicators for, um, for 2024, which I think could be sort of a dangerous proposition, but it'll just be interesting to see some of the, the voting patterns. But, you know, at, at the individual state level, these things are really important. You know, the, the, the future of reproductive rights in Ohio is on the ballot, um, uh, potentially important, uh, decisions in the Pennsylvania state Supreme court, and that also sets up elections in 2025, where it's possible Republicans could flip the court. You know, if, if, uh, you know, if the Democrats win one or both chambers in Virginia, they can't necessarily get their way because Glenn Youngkin is still going to be governor, but Republicans win both chambers, that will be a sort of a sea change in governance in Virginia. So, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of governing and policy stakes in these individual States, um, beyond, you know, taking the 20,000 foot view and trying to sift through these, these, uh, results for, uh, um, for, for clues about, about the future.
0: Well, Kyle, thank you so much for this excellent mega preview. Listeners, you can find a link in the notes to the crystal ball analysis on this topic. Kyle, I hope you are able to get a little bit of sleep and I'll see you on the other side of the election.
1: Yeah. And um, at the very least, we're planning to have sort of a a, a quick reaction to the results in the crystal ball um, sometime on Wednesday. Um, See how much how much we actually know whether these things are decisive or not. But um, so so look out for that uh, at the crystal ball.
0: Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong-Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.